Welcome to Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, where we believe that connection is the opposite of addiction, vulnerability is the antidote to shame, and that recovery isn't just rewarding, it's also a lot of fun. We're your hosts, Steve and Julie. Listen as we get together with friends to shed light on the hard things, talk about the other side of addiction, and how we create a life so full, there's no space left for alcohol. In this episode, we talk with our friends, Robert and Michael, about what it means to change the narratives we've held onto throughout our lives. We talk about the stigma of alcoholism and how it stops people from getting the help we need. We talk about changing spiritual beliefs and religious narratives. We also share the narratives we hold about ourselves and how that affects both us and the people in our lives. Listen as we discuss ways to change the lens through which we see the world. Before we dive into the conversation tonight, we just want to take a minute to ask everybody if you could please rate or review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We'd really like for this content to be shared with as many other people in recovery as possible, and that would really help make that happen. So tonight we are here with our friends, Michael and Robert. I'm going to ask them both to just introduce themselves really quick. Robert, do you want to go first? Hey guys, uh, my name is Robert and I have been sober for about two and a half years. And I've got to say that my life has changed for the better. It is a 180 degree flip from what it was and really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming, Rob. Thanks for being here. And Michael, how are you tonight? I am fabulous. Thanks for having me, guys. My name is Michael. I am 42 years old. I've been on a recovery journey since I was 27. So I've been around doing doing this thing for a little bit. I am at 41 days since my my last slip, but I have over 10 years of uh, sobriety within that period. So if I hadn't found this journey and connected with people like yourselves, my story would be very, very different right now. We're really glad you're here. And this is Michael's second time, I think, on this podcast. So Mm -hmm. thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. So for the topic tonight, we all have internal narratives that form the way we see the world and the way we experience life. Some of those narratives come from childhood and our family of origin. Others come from experiences we've lived through later in our lives. And often as we make our way along the path of recovery, we discover that some of those stories we've come to believe need changing. What are some of the long-held beliefs you've had to change in your life? How did you do it? And how did that play a role in your recovery? Lots of stuff to dig into there. Um, I, you know, one of the things that that hit me, uh, and I was <clears throat> talking with another group about this earlier as well, is you know, there's a lot of shame surrounding addiction. And I think a lot of that is taught, you know, we're taught to look down on people. And, you know, there's there's just a whole narrative that addiction is a choice and addicts are weak and all sorts of negativity around it. And not only do I believe, of course, this needs to change in community and the healthcare world and everything as a whole, but I had to change my own thinking about what addiction meant and what recovery looks like. 
because one of the things that I really struggled with was a lot of guilt and shame over having a slip and being able to talk openly with people about when that happens and be honest about it without facing judgment and without facing shaming is just massive to me. You know, I, I, my own journey has been filled with pitfalls and getting back up and there is such acceptance and being able to accept myself as a human who struggles with addiction, you know, and that that's, that's acceptable. That's okay. Has, has made a massive shift in how I approach my recovery. I'd have to agree completely with uh, what you just said, Michael, like what you just said just resonated inside of me to assume that, uh, that the people that were drunk, that were alcoholics and addicts and whatnot lived under bridges and were bums. And my, like everybody in my family was an alcoholic. And I was waiting, like, as I was, when I was a kid, I was waiting for them to go missing and for us to find them underneath the bridge and the shame and the guilt. It's unreal. It is unreal. And the stigmas are unreal. And it's like now, you know, at the, at the start, sure, I was, uh, I was a victim at the start. Mm-hmm. And I was red, my ego was smashed. And like, mm-hmm. I felt like I was broken and this and that when really, really, I was not. And I thought that alcoholism was all these things that it was not. Two and a half years in, I look at things completely differently. Like I grew up in a family that you know, they 7.30 in the morning, they would say priorities to each other. They'd be pouring tumblers of vodka and making ice picks or else uh, orange juice and whatever. And it was, <laughs> alcohol seemed like it was a normal thing as well. This is another thing that I had to realize when I, when I started meeting people that don't drink, that not everybody drank. I just assumed everybody drank. Like there's so many narratives that have to change. But another yeah. big, big one here when I was younger is like, I grew up in a household where, like my mom was coming from an Orthodox Dutch family and, and was trying to raise us that way. My dad was coming from a family that didn't believe and to the point that they didn't believe in, in a higher power. They didn't believe in God and like none of that could exist. So because it didn't exist as well, atheism can't exist because one can't exist without the other. So all of that is just a bunch of whatever and whatnot. And this is the way that I was raised. And uh, I remember hearing other family members saying, oh, he's not for me, oh, blah, 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 a call to this or that or this at recovery. No, no, no. Everybody hates a quitter and, <laughs> and all these different things. Or I don't have a problem, but you have a problem. And just watching the chaos and the insanity all the time. And then I start a program of recovery and realize that it's a spiritual disease and that this, this, this alcohol has taken away my ability to connect on a spiritual level completely. And instead, it just layered up a bunch of uh, layers of fear, like a great big onion. And as you pull them off, when you're trying to deal with the hard stuff, Steve, as you say, you know, you're open to a new experience afterwards, kind of stings your eyeballs as you pull off another layer of that. (laughs) But yeah, so then I realized that, yeah, I got to connect to a higher power. I'm going to start praying, but I don't know what I believe in. Don't know who I'm praying to, but I can feel something. What is this that I feel? Well, if I feel this, obviously, there's got to be something there. There's a seed there. There's something that I can grow. Let's see what this actually is. Then all of a sudden, I don't have the want to drink. And I, all of a sudden, my defects of character are becoming less. All of a sudden, I'm less restless, irritable, and discontent. And I'm praying twice a day, and I'm trying to learn how to meditate, which I still find entertaining at times, but I'm doing much better. And all these things wouldn't exist if I 
didn't change that narrative and realize that, you know, part of the reason why there's so much suffering in the rest of my family is nobody is willing to be vulnerable. No one is willing to ask for help. No one's willing to talk the way that Steve and I talk together. Like it doesn't happen. These things are so important. We got to change the narrative. We got to feel, we got to love, we got to connect, right? So much has to change. The, the views on addiction just in general are driven by something that I fear. Yes. Fear and shame. Yeah. For me, it was shame. I was sober for 14 months the first time go round. And I had, there was so much shame. There was no way I was going to talk to anybody about the fact that I was having such a hard time quitting. And I didn't, I didn't talk to anybody for the whole time. It took so much in me to just show up and ask for help because of that narrative that it's only losers and it's only people who are weak. And it's, it's like a, it's seen as like a moral defect or a character flaw. And that's what I thought it was. I mean, it made me feel like I was just a bad person. Like something was so wrong with me that I just needed to fix it. And that helped me from, or that stopped me from asking for any kind of help or support. I think there's probably a lot of people out there that still carry that narrative with them. And there's a lot of like our friends and family that still carry that narrative. And so it makes it really hard to open up even with the people that we know and love because we know what they think of alcoholics and we don't want them to look at us the way that they look at the other people. I mean, I've heard my mom talk about this relative or that relative that has a problem with alcohol. And you can kind of hear like the disdain in her voice when she talks about them. And here I am, like, I am one of those people. I just haven't told you and I hide it better than they do, you know? (laughs) And so you just, you can't talk about it. And it's really sad that we can't just talk. We can finally talk about things like depression and anxiety openly and without judgment. I wish that we could talk about alcoholism the same way and addiction in general, the same way that we do everything else. Cause I'm no, we don't judge people who say they suffer from depression or anxiety anymore as a culture. We don't look down on those people anymore and think there's something morally wrong with them. I wish we could do the same thing with alcohol. Totally. And I'm starting to see a bit of a shift in the medical community towards that. I think real true, like addiction support specialists are getting better, but it's still rampant. If you talk to your primary care provider about addiction, they're very hesitant to offer support. They're very hesitant to do, you know, anything. And it's, it's just, yeah, that, that stigma runs deep in, I think they probably teaches part of medical school, you know, (laughs) I mean, I think I know for me, when I went to go and see my doctor after I quit, my doctor was like, here's some antidepressants. Like that's basically, he's like, take a pill. I did. At that point in time, I was very, very new into this whole thing. And I mean, I I don't take them anymore. I don't think a lot of it has to do with changing that whole perspective. I mean, don't show emotions. You can be a man or a woman. A lot of us grew up in that generation where we never saw a healthy exchange of emotions between our parents and or friends when growing up. I know for me growing up, you felt like an I felt like an outsider. So I never really had 
I, I moved a whole bunch of times. I, I never really had my own sense of community. Like, you know, you see people that have grown up with the same group of friends their entire time. And they always had somebody to, they had their group of people to fall back on. I like, I was very envious of those people. Those people were like, I, I wish I was one of them. And you'd sit in that group of, of, of friends and you'd be a part of it for a short period of time. And then you never, it, the friendships never developed. So uh, like talking about emotions, showing emotions, being, uh, being vulnerable, both. I mean, if that doesn't, if that isn't one of the key parts in any of this recipe and changing all of those narratives, it's talking about the ones that you think are broken in your head. It's the ones that, that hold you back. Robert calls it, you know, there's the, t the character defects. We can call it a lot of different things. You call them symptoms of the disease mm -hmm. because to call them defects of character at all times, when they're not actually yeah. themselves kind yeah. of keep you in a cage. And that's no good because we need to be free, right? right? So maybe be dealing with the ones that are showing very aware. But are they defects of character if they're just arising at times? So you can't really call them all out at all, all time. We pray and we ask our defects to be removed, but we may not have any of them showing. So maybe we could call them symptoms of the disease. Well, we could call it, like I said, we, we can call it whatever <laughs> you want, right? My, my feelings yeah. are hurt. How, what sense of self was affected? first and foremost because i have to be able to explain and communicate to myself let alone maybe to somebody else how that whole thing affected me and then how do i correct it if it's a me thing and then it's a it's a me thing that i have to communicate to somebody this is one of the other narratives it's like i actually have to communicate my needs i have to communicate my boundaries if i don't communicate these things properly how in the hell are you gonna know like effective communication, plain and simple. You can't read my mind. I can't read yours. So for us to move forward, we have to talk. And the best way to make progress is to be vulnerable. And the, to allow the change of the narrative. Yeah. And that's been a big part of the recovery community for me is learning how to be vulnerable and learning what real friendships are and those real co connections. So, and one of the things I was thinking about earlier regarding the topic was, you know, one of my firmly held beliefs and one of the beliefs that led me to start drinking when I was younger was that I wasn't worthy of friendship. I wasn't likable. I wasn't lovable. I wasn't pretty enough or smart enough or funny enough. And alcohol came into my life at that time when my self-esteem was so incredibly low that it became that social lubricant that allowed me to feel like I was making those connections when, you know, really they weren't real connections. It was just kind of this masquerade to, to fit the image, the social image of fitting in and having friends, but that, you know, defining what real relationships and real friends are has definitely come with re recovery, with sobriety and, you know, really learning what true connections look like. Yeah. Learning how to be a friend for the first time is quite interesting as an adult, is it not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh please let's talk about this one this is it's a great this is that in itself is a great topic learning how to be a friend mm -hmm. learning how to be 
rent. And I've got to say, it's been quite rewarding. And yeah. there's been ups and downs. And like, I've actually felt uh, different uh, insecurities that I've never felt before, which gave me the opportunity to actually be aware of what those insecurities really were. And then for my actions, instead of just working on impulse, it's taking a second and actually figuring out what my motives are for my actions and then realizing that my first impulse may not actually be what I wanted to act or what I wanted to do. And then I'm doing something totally different. And now think before you react unheard of, right? Think before you <laughs> like getting back to that changing of narrative. I grew up in a family that was very materialistic and everyone was a narcissist. They simply liked to watch themselves exist. It was wild. And I was the outcast. I was the scapegoat. I was their, 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 <laughs> their whipping post said all these crazy things about me that didn't even exist to friends and family. It was just wild, but very materialistic. And, and, and within those philosophies and ideologies of materialism, I mean, we're just atoms, right? There's a bit of space in between these, right? So there's a vibration that flows, but uh, in a materialistic world and in that ideology, when we die, we die and we are done. That is it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the idea. Like, let's talk about taking on a whole new narrative. All right. So I'm going to go down the spiritual path. And now as I'm going down the spiritual path, I'm going to learn that, you know, we don't die. Everything that has energy does transfer on. And that I'm a part of the universe. I am not special. I am not anything that is separate from. I am a part of everything that does carry an energy frequency. And so you live your life, your entire life, thinking that you don't have any other purpose than just to be here in this moment with these things that you can hold, this materialistic approach to everything, which is very selfish, self-centered, and the power of uh, a lust for greed, or greed and lust wrapped up in power, however you want to call this. And it's ugly, right? So now we go to an idealistic approach, more of a spiritual approach, one that is mind, body, and soul connected to nature, connected to the universe connected to these celestial bodies up in the sky. There's, there's a relationship way, way bigger than, than what we know, but to try to tap into these things, why not? And so now this materialistic approach is gone. Spiritualistic view is trying to take hold. And now we have an idealistic approach on things. And instead of being told what to think, learning how to think, and so every event in life that kind of comes through, now I observe it, and not by just observing it and letting it pass by, like we've been told to do. I'll observe this event. I'll observe what's on the side of this event that normally I would not even bring into my observations. And now I will think very, very closely as to what I'm thinking about what I'm observing. And then I'll ask myself, hey, do I like the way that I'm thinking about what I'm thinking? Very, 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 very good question to ask. And now all of a sudden what I'm observing is totally different than what I've been told to observe. Now I'm observing something from, from, from inward out, but it's not just me. It's actually a connection to the universe and it's so much bigger. And the power in it is overwhelming and the journey is exciting. I think it takes a lot of courage to do what you're saying there. Very difficult. This, Yes, it takes courage because you look at the things that normally you turn your head. And this is where the true answers to the universe, as you could say, but the way that you actually connect to it are found is not by what's right in front of you. It's by what's to the side of you. 
And it's to what you sometimes would turn your head and not look at, but to really observe those things, to learn them, to have some really difficult times within them, to have a new experience, like it says on the back of that brilliant shirt you guys have created. It says it all, right? But yeah, like, go on, go on. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage to to question anything we've been taught and told to believe. That is that is what changing the narrative is. And it takes a lot of confidence, I think, in who we are to change anything, whether it's what your spiritual beliefs are or what your beliefs about the world are or your beliefs about yourself are. I know for me, a big part of it was the beliefs that I held about myself and beliefs that I've held about myself since I was little that it goes against what we've been taught and it goes against what has been just ingrained in us since we were small. And it takes a lot of confidence to stand up to that and say, wait, I'm not sure that this story that I was told is actually true. I know I had this moment with my youngest daughter and she's going to kill me if she ever listens to this podcast, but I'm going to tell this story anyway. So it was a big one for me. Um, So she is starting to spend some time with this boy and he's a wonderful kid and she's talking to him on the phone. I can hear her and she's just giggly and she's bouncy. And she's like, she's so, so excited. And she's, she's my kid. I, she's, she comes by it. Honestly, she's so full of joy that it's like bubbling out of her and everything in me wants to be like, you need to tone that down girl, like chill out. You are going to be too much for that boy. And he is going to be like, can't do it. Right. That's what I want to tell her. And I'm watching this and I'm like, I cannot say that to her. That's exactly what was said to me when I was little. And then when I was a teenager, I was always, you know, I feel things so big (laughs) and it was always too much for, especially the adults in my life, my parents and close relatives. And all that did was force me to start shutting everything down and trying to make all of those emotions smaller and smaller because the people around me didn't feel comfortable with them. And that would be so unfair to do to her. And what that did to me was made me try to be somebody that I wasn't so that I wasn't too much for somebody or so that, you know, I I started just shaping myself into what everybody, what I thought everybody would like so that I would have friends or so that I would have a boyfriend or whatever it was. And that's like the last thing that I want to do to her. But it's interesting how hard it is for me not to say, just, just tone it down a little bit, kid. (laughs) And Yeah, I don't know. It's narratives like that, that they shape who we are from such a young age. And it's authenticity has been a really huge piece of recovery for me and just being who I really am, which for me is terrifying. Because every time I let my authentic self out, even from, you know, as a teenager, I felt like I was rejected in some form or another for it. So the real version of me is so, so far gone. It's been a year of just trying to find her. The last thing I want to do to my kid is have her start that same path and that same journey and start trying to shut everything down and then be miserable and drink because of it. And I think that's something else too, is that as soon as we identify these narratives, we get to pass the new things that we learn and the open-mindedness and all of that onto our kids, which then gives me a little bit of hope. Like, I don't know that I ever would have explored any of these narratives at all to begin with had I not 
actually decided to face my alcoholism and, and start the path of recovery. But now I get to pass some of this stuff on to my kid or in some way not pass some of this stuff on to my kid, which is a really cool piece of changing the narrative, I think. Yes. I think you bring up a really, really cool point is not only are we changing the narrative that we tell ourselves, the one that we've been told, if it's the one that we've been told, it's the one that we've seen throughout our lives. And then as you change that, the narrative around you starts changing too. So whether that is someone who is there with you through part of that, and then you outgrow them because they're not part of that narrative anymore, or like your daughter, you start changing the narrative of the way she sees things because of what you've learned. So, and I mean, I think our parents have tried to do the same thing from what their parents, when they were raised, when they were raised, our parents tried to change their narrative, doing the best they could, at least mine did, did the best they could with what they had. And then through this journey, I can look at all of that now and say, if, if I do this work, if I do my internal work, I'm, it just gets naturally shared with who's around me, with, whether it's my family or it's my friends or the things that you learn because I can actually say something because one of my narratives was, was not to talk. If I said too much, I would hear about it. Why did you say that? And, I, and then I would have to defend myself and explain, well, I mean, what's the big deal? Well, you don't need to talk about that. Then they're just going to ask questions. What do I have to hide? Yeah. I like lived so long hiding behind a narrative to keep it when it wasn't real to begin with. And now I don't have to. I don't have to at all. Absolutely. It's interesting. It's, this isn't necessarily drinking related, but it made me think about, you know, parents and, and the way that we either try to mimic or shadow the ways that we were raised, or we decide to go completely against it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I grew mm -hmm. up in a home where my parents had very difficult you know, family relations growing up. So they, they were raised by emotionally distant parents. And so they took that and they actually learned from it and made sure that they were very emotionally available parents. They actually taught us to be able to express emotions and to be able to talk. And I'm, I'm kind of an unusual narrative in the rooms because I did have that wonderful, healthy, open upbringing. And that's not everyone's story. Um, I was very lucky to have a supportive home. Um, and I do think that played a part in being able to, you know, work on turning myself around at a younger age than a lot. I, I kind of knew there was this other way to be out there, you know, and, and I just didn't know what I was hiding from, what I was burying. But yeah, it's I, I just find it fascinating how it tends to go one of two ways. We either mimic how we were brought up or we fly in the face of it to try to not be that that person. 
Well, yes, I can. I agree with you completely. So my, I didn't, uh, hearing your story is very refreshing. I love that. And like, like my wife, she has really nice parents too. And I love them to death. I consider her parents, my parents. My parents are really abusive. It's absolutely horrendous. I'm estranged from them. I keep my girls from them to keep them safe. So that the abuse doesn't happen to them as well. Mm. But there's a change in the narrative. I don't want my girls to see that stuff. Mm. I don't want my to be influenced in that way. I don't, uh, I want something totally different for them, right? Mm. And I don't want my daughter growing up with an alcoholic, or sorry, I am an alcoholic. I don't want my daughter growing up with a drunken father. I don't want it, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, staying sober, it's quite easy actually, because I work my butt off constantly. And I, uh, I pray to, uh, to a higher power and I am, I've been reading a lot of different books on spirituality. I find that that's kind of what's helping me keep sober now. It's a little bit different than what was keeping me sober at the start. And it's just this journey. And it's, it's so cool. And like the connection I'm feeling with, with you guys right now is amazing. I've got to be honest. I needed this all day long. Things have been kind of off. And normally when things are off, I hide and I, I go into a shell. So let's change the narrative. Let's go and connect with a bunch of people that I don't know. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I'm so glad that I have. This is, this is a, a wonderful experience. And I've said it once, I'll say it again. I really enjoy recovery. Mm. But the narrative's got to change constantly. We need to live a new experience daily and in the moment. It's required for, for, this, uh, for this disease, right? We need, to, we need to keep growing. We can't stay stagnant. So, And that brings up a fabulous point, talking about when you're first getting into early recovery versus what that journey looks like. Fear and discomfort and misery, you know, we, we tend to all have those things in common when we decide to get sober, right? We're scared of the repercussions. We're miserable from how it makes us feel. We've lost major things in our lives. So most of us get there for some sort of negative reason. Some negative consequences brought us there that we don't want to experience anymore. But the longer you spend on the path in recovery, the people who really get sober and get this and live this, change their lives. We change our own narratives by not being afraid of drinking anymore, by not, you know, looking at those, those things and saying, I never, I, you know, maybe I say, I don't ever want to have a hangover again, but that's not my reason for not drinking anymore. My reason is I enjoy my life as a sober person. I am awake. I am 100% present and I have fun with recovery. And it doesn't feel like that when you first get there. It doesn't feel like you're ever going to have fun again without a drink. It doesn't feel, you know, it's terrifying to fathom going 24 hours, much less 24 months, 24 years, right? Without drinking. And so our own narrative changes on that path. And we realize, oh my God, like this is fun. This is good. This is, this feels good. It feels good to connect with others who get me. It feels good to help people, you know, who may not be as far along as I am. And I can tell them what happened to me and how it changed. And maybe it'll help make an impact in their path. Yeah. And it's so cool. Cause while you're doing that, when you're, when you're helping out like that, you realize all of a sudden that you're sharing your story, but you're not feeling that shame right here anymore that you used to feel for it. And then you realize this is a tool and that this happened for a reason. So you can help somebody else. And it's just, it's amazing. It and is. then when we're not carrying the shame anymore, you know, life, life can really happen on life's terms, right? Cause we do, we're not, we're not trying to control everything. We're not trying to hide from anything. 
everything is right out there in the open and it's all good stuff even the hard stuff because the hard stuff only makes you work to make things so it's better the next time right and just live it new i love what you just said the gift that keeps on giving that's right (laughs) robert you mentioned something you mentioned what i have written on the back of my t-shirt and that's what happens when you challenge your past experience is you give yourself a chance at a new one. And that's really what we're talking about here. So I'd like to say thank you, Robert. Thank you, Michael, for coming on tonight, joining us, sharing your thoughts and experiences. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was amazing. Like Robert said, this was, this was a wonderful group, really clicked with everyone, really enjoyed having this conversation with you all tonight. That's exactly the way I feel. So, uh, but yeah, thank you so much. I feel so honored to be here. Steve, I love you. You know I do. And I, I love you both too as well now. <laughs> <laughs> Not strangers, just friends we haven't met sort of thing, right? So, but yeah, thank you so much for this time, guys. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate you. We'd also like to thank our listeners for sharing this space with us. Remember to subscribe or follow to keep getting new content. And if you have any comments or topic suggestions, you can email us at throughtheglassrecovery at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue to explore life on the other side of alcohol.